when you look at Exodus, there's many things you can look at specifically and how to apply that to your life. And so today I just wanted to share a few pieces. More of vision that has to do with the way we as a fellowship, how we should approach scripture and our gatherings. But it has to do with the heart of God and how God, what God is looking for in his relationship with people. So we will be, in the weeks to come, we'll be picking it back up again in Exodus 22, I believe, and continuing through to the end of Exodus. So we have to make it all the way to Exodus 40, and we're at chapter 22 right now. So we have probably a good six months left. I don't know for sure. Um, We'll see how fast it goes once we get to the tabernacle and part of those pieces. But the heart of Exodus and the word of God that I wanted to really dig into has to do with how God wants to interact with people. So I called today's message a special treasure. And I want to go back to chapter 19 of Exodus, Exodus 19. And just read two verses out of this. And this is when Israel is at Mount Sinai and... God is speaking to Moses, telling Moses what to go tell the children of Israel to say. And as they're coming and sharing these things, the response of the people is what God is looking at. And so what we see is the response of people all the way from 19, all the way through to 20. Um, And then continuing through the book of Exodus into when Joshua actually leads them into the promised land is what is the response of the people? Now, this is the part that I've been thinking about a lot. And I, I sometimes think that we miss how, what we are like and how we respond to God and what God is trying to do with us. And one of the huge things that I keep thinking about is how in my own life, like right now it's New Year's Day and it's easy to say, well, what, is, what does God want me to do this year and ask for the assignments? Now, I believe God gives us assignments that he has things for us to do that are ours to do. But I think it goes way beyond that. So it's not just an assignment, and it's not just a list of, so, so if you think about salvation, I, God doesn't just give us a list and say, if you do all these things, you're in. If you think about sanctification, it's not also not just a list, go do all these things and you're in, but it's a state of being with him and like him and being made into his image. And so I think of, of all the times that we can go through the scripture and we can make lists and say, this is what God wants. But at the same time, he wants something more. And so in this Exodus 19 chapter, in verse five, God says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And so that's the part I want to read. This is really an invitation from God to the children of Israel saying, if you will obey me, if you'll keep my covenant, if you'll do this, I will make you my special people, a special treasure to me above all people. And he throws it in there. The Lord says, all the earth is mine, but you will be a special treasure to me. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses goes, speaks to them. And at one point they say, yeah, we want to do everything he says. Then the Lord comes, tries to speak to them in person. They remove themselves afar off and say, Moses, why don't you go talk to God? We'll stay over here where it's safe because the thundering and the, the actual presence of God is scary. And so eventually we get here and we know as we continue in Exodus, we'll get to the moment where they build the golden calf. And it's like everyone that's helping build the golden calf was actually there and heard the thundering voice of God. And yet, they say to Aaron when they come to that point, like, why don't you make us a God that we can worship and say, this is the one who brought us out of Egypt. Somebody, you know, a, a substantial God, someone we can touch and feel. And God had invited them in to say, I want you to feel my presence, to know me in a personal sort of way. 
And so this invitation on a special to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, this becomes a bit of a theme throughout scripture. And so I'm not going to look at every single reference to it today, but I want to now jump to the New Testament to 1 Peter, where Peter writes about it. So we're in 1 Peter. First Peter chapter two, and I want to read verses four through 10. Peter is writing, and the way we take this word, he's writing to us, talking about Jesus and how we approach him. He says, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the picture is that Jesus is the rock. He's the living stone. He is the one in whom we find our refuge. He is the place where our feet are planted. He is our rock of refuge. We find that throughout the Psalms. Then he says, you also as living stones, you're being built up as a spiritual house. So what's God doing? He's building a spiritual house. And Peter says it's a holy priesthood. And we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Verse 7. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. And so he sets up a, a, an understanding here. And he says, some people are building on this rock and some people are stumbling over this rock. And right now in our culture, we see a lot of people who will disbelieve on purpose something that God has said in his word. And they won't take it uh, just as for what it says. And then once they have established one thing that they don't believe in, they turn to something else that all most Christians believe in and say, this doesn't make any sense. Why do y'all believe that? And so we're like, well, because, and we, and we try to defend this thing over here, not realizing that they have already thrown out all of this over here. And they're never, this is never going to make sense to a worldview that doesn't have this part in it. So for instance, um, we've had in our little fellowship, a lot of discussions on how creation and the flood might have worked. But all of us are coming with a certain presupposition that God created the heavens and the earth because that's what the Bible says. And so every discussion we've had has been within the parameter that God created the heavens and the earth. So then we can talk about the age of the earth. We can talk about how might the flood have happened. We can discuss all these things, but we're all operating under within the premise of what well, God created the heavens and the earth. And so what will happen is, for, this would be an example, but it goes over into spiritual issues as well. We say, well, if so, if someone says, well, we don't think God actually did that creation part, and then they'll come and say, look at you, you believe in the flood, this is ridiculous. And we say, is it any harder? What's harder, to create the earth and the universe or to flood one little globe in the universe? But because they've taken away part of it, then they're willing to question another section, and we're left scrambling, trying, whoa, blah, blah, blah. and it's because they've already taken away. And so this happens within the church. We, we say things like, uh, you know, if you think about family, you know, family is a beautiful thing. God created it. In the garden, you have Adam and Eve, and God ordains it. He establishes it. He talks about, <clears throat> you know, a man leaving his father and mother, clinging to his wife. We have all this, this beautiful thing about a husband and a wife and God, it sets this in place. And so then within the context of that, we can come to the New Testament and it talks about loving each other, respecting each other, taking care of each other, serving one another, being faithful to each other. We have all of that. But if you go back to the beginning and say, well, actually, you know what we think? We think it's not actually about a husband, man, and wife. We're just going to do any kind of relationship. Man and man, woman and woman, man and dog, man and car, whatever we want to do. And it gets very bizarre. And then they come to the things that are in the New Testament and the instruction on how to live together. 
And they say, that's legalistic bondage. You got to get rid of that and be liberated. And so they try to get rid of everything that's in the New Testament that's actually there to help us. And this is what we're going to find as we go through Exodus, is every time you see a law of God, there is something there that God is trying to protect someone from. Sometimes God is trying to protect us from ourselves. Sometimes he's protecting us from each other. But many, many times the law is put in place to protect the one who cannot defend himself. And so as we think about that heart of God, where he wants to defend the person who can't defend himself, and he's trying to put us in a place where we can defend the fatherless, where we can take care of widows, where we can take care of the things that are abandoned and, and forgotten, that's what he's after. And then we, through our resting of scripture, change things around and we make it about something else, our own liberality or our, our own, uh, you know, allowing sin in our lives or, or well, maybe. And, and so like right now, there's this huge thing about um, the whole thing on, on women pastors. And in, when I look at it and I look at scripture and I look at history, I think, well, well, first of all, what we've done is we've taken the pastoral role and we have demoted it from something beautiful and holy and spiritual that was happening within the fellowship. And we've made it into this corporate thing. And then we say, only men can have it. And so they come with every argument and say, well, we don't think this, well, we've already lost the ground a little bit because we've turned it into a corporate thing over here when it was about the church and fellowship. The role of a pastor, especially the way I read it, um, you know, I am not a pastor without having a wife standing by my side. I might be in ministry in the church I might be serving in my gifts in the church as a single man or something, but to be truly an elder and to be a pastor, there's something to do with the, the husband of one wife, and there's something there that we forget. It's, we're not talking about a huge high salary position. We're talking about a people that comes together and the way we serve each other. And so if we bring it back to that heart of God, that we are a people that comes together and we serve each other, suddenly the argument about who gets paid most in the church and all these other things is ridiculous because it's not the church anymore. It's some business based on some part, um, almost a mockery of, of what Christianity is supposed to be. And so I struggle a lot with the discussions that we're having in our day, in our age, because I feel many of them are very misplaced. Because someone say, well, don't, don't you think God values women? Well, like, well, obviously he does. Have you read the Bible? Do you see how God elevates and takes care of the women? And like, I, you know, there's, there's, this, there's this silly way of looking at it, but it's very real. It's like the meme that went around earlier. This um, You might've already seen it or not. But it was like, have you noticed how men always go up on a mountain to see God? But if you look in the Bible, every time that a woman sees God, God comes to her because she's stuck at home or whatever. She can't go to the mountain to go see God but God would come to the woman where she was. And so the, the idea of the meme was that you, as doing your housework and taking care of your children, God sees you, God loves you, God cares. And it's true, God interacts with us. And if you look at the truths of scripture, like the resurrection and the birth of Christ, and you see how women attended the very most intimate details of what was happening in God's interaction with earth, you realize that God loves and cares for all people and he gives us different roles. And so what happens a lot of times as we think of this chosen people, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, is we can get sidestepped into all kinds of discussions about structure and other stuff. But there is something that God wants. He's talking to us and he's giving us an invitation to walk with him, to know him. And so if we continue reading in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2, um, so the end of verse eight said, they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Verse nine, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And in, what's interesting is the next couple of verses, it says, I'm begging you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul and have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. 
And so there is a certain sense in which when we talk about this holy priesthood, this kingdom, this special people, this nation of priests, that there is something happening here that has to do with God's testimony to the world. And so what has happened, and this is still happening in evangelical circles in America and in other places, I'm sure, is you will have people, and we look at them, and in the framework of the church that we operate in, they have great gifts. And we are amazed at how maybe they can speak really well and move an entire audience to cut together and, and make us feel like we've really heard from God. And so we protect that, but then they're human and they sin. And so we don't quite know what to do because they still have the gift and they can still do this thing that, they were, that we hired them for, but now they've sinned. And so literally there's lots of churches in America today when something like this happens, then they get everyone to sign NDAs so nobody will talk about what happened and they will try to hide everything so that their celebrity person can continue in ministry because we've made ministry be something that, it's, that God never intended it to be. And so this is a very touchy thing because we can, we can, be, we can be attacked and, and said, hey, you, know, you Christians, you, you, you're hiding sin in your own ranks while you're trying to point it out in the world. And it's true. That is what the church in America does. And so we need to repent of that. And we need to understand what is it that who are we when God says we're a nation of priests? Like part of what that means is that any one of us can approach God and we can pray. We don't have to go to, like, there is power in going to a friend or going to someone else and saying, hey, I need you to pray with me. Can you help me out? And maybe there's counsel that gets exchanged and it's useful. But any one of us can approach God. Any one of us can actually preach the word of God by simply reading it. And this was something that some 700 800 years ago, the Waldensians were insisting upon was that anybody could read the word of God. And so they kept translating the Bible into their local languages in the Alps and other areas, wherever they were spreading to. And they would just get together at someone's house and they would have whoever could read, be it man or woman, read the word of God because they wanted to know what it said. And so they began to become a revival movement in the churches but because they let anyone read the word and not just a priest, they were very opposed by the, the, the official church at the time, provided great opposition, was trying to kill them out. Because they, they were fine. They said, anybody can read. If you can read the word of God, read the word of God. And so they would. We need to hear the word of God. And so what I'm encouraged by is that throughout all the ages, the church, there's always been people who have just simply come and said, what does the word say and how can we apply that? And it can change the world. And so you'll have an official record of what's happening. You know, the Alexander the Greats and the Julius Caesars and all of these people, the Napoleon Bonapartes, all these guys up here. And what we don't see is down here on the grassroots level, all the people that are responding to the Lord and that are loving their neighbor and are finding ways to hear the word of God and share that. And it's always been there. So we talk about the dark ages. Oh, they were dark, but even in the dark ages, God's light was still going forth. And so it reminds me, you know, this verse we just read, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's uh, Second Peter, no, First Peter 2, verse 9. So who may proclaim that God called them out of dark, uh, out of the dark. Anybody can proclaim that. Do you have to have an official role in the church to be able to say, I was lost and now I'm found? No. Do we have gatherings where we have different structure than we do in our own homes? Well, yes, we do. We have different gatherings where we do different things. Like I, I think of when we come to a concert and, and people are playing music. I have never gone to a concert where everyone was there with their beautiful music and said, oh, I brought my guitar, uh, let me play a piece too, because I know the order of things. I've actually had to learn that it's inappropriate to clap at certain points in a concert if it's classical music, and I'm, I'm still confused about that. So, <clears throat> um, but there's certain order when we gather, there's a purpose to our gathering, so when I gather at your house and, you're, and we're all eating, um, I don't actually just jump up and say, okay, everybody gather around and let's pray. I always look, whose house is this? And we go with the order of that house. 
and we kind of expect that respect back and forth. Well, in the body of Christ, we do that too. We have different gatherings for different reasons. So there are times when I am with a gathering of believers and the way they have done things for a very long time and their structure of doing things is a certain way. And I remember being in places where I'm looking at it going, Lord, what do you think about this? Because I think it's ridiculous. And God has on several occasions just simply said, Joseph, just chill. This is what they do to try to please me. And I'm working with them. And I'm reminded of that verse where it says, um, you know, every servant to his own master, he stands or falls. I'm like, okay, so these people think this is what they have to do to honor God. And I think, well, what about if you take someone from a completely different culture from mine and you bring them here and drop them in with us on a Sunday morning and they see the things we do, there are some things that they might not be appreciative of. Like, we get together for worship to get things set up and you know, half the time I'm coming with a dad joke that I wanna share. And why is the pastor not being reverent while you're setting up for the service of the Lord? Well, that's a good question. I am rejoicing in the Lord and I'm enjoying the fellowship, but that could be an offense to someone. Someone could look at that and say, what? Who do you, what's he doing? Um, Yeah, like I, like I like telling dad jokes to Eric. Like this week, the one that I told him was, um, my wife told me to put ketchup on the shopping list. Now I can't read anything on it. <laughs> Eric, now no. I'll be like, hey, Eric, I got one for you. He'll be like, okay. <laughs> So how do we do things and why do we do them? Well, what I wanted to do is just talk a little bit about how we do things here at Living Water Fellowship. But in preparation for that, let's go to Acts and I want to see what they did and part of what the church did there. Now we are, many times we see a few individuals doing something in Acts, but occasionally we'll see the body of Christ working together. And so if you look, um, so one of my favorite verses of course, we've read this one a lot here, is over in Acts chapter 2. I want to read that passage, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 40 to the end there. So this is right after Peter has preached, and he has spoken to the men of Israel, and he has given everybody there the word of God, and many have come to him. Because he says, the promises to you and to your children, to all who are far off, as many as the Lord of God will call. So Peter is saying that, kind of like, I'm not exactly sure what God's up to, but this is about God reaching his people. So as many as he's going to call, it's for you. And so later we see more specifics coming out of Peter to all who believe is what he said, what we just read a minute ago. But here he is in verse 40, he says, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized and that day about 3000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And so what we find is that um, God set certain things in place with the early church, and some of those things are still happening. So for instance, to this day, the people who believe are being baptized. And this is happening in, in Christian churches around the world. People who believe are being baptized. And then in verse 42, what I just read, we come together, we're in the apostles' doctrine, we're in fellowship, we're in the breaking of bread, we're doing, and we're praying together. This is all what we're still doing. So verse 43 says, then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So this is very early in the church. We see a bunch of stuff starting happening. We see people sharing of their um, earthly wealth with each other. We see them going from house to house, eating bread together. Um, <clears throat> a lot of fellowship is happening. So this is a beautiful time. And so then... We have a, a moment in the church later. So this was in Jerusalem, but if we go to chapter, to Acts chapter 12, 
we see something happening in Antioch. And so in Acts chapter 12, here we have Antioch, and they're gathered together. Uh, Barnabas and Saul have come back from Jerusalem. And now they're, uh, so this is, this would be, let's see, what am I doing? In Acts 12, 25, going into chapter 13. <clears throat> Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So now it's Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And so this is important because this is one of the times when the recorder is saying, the Christians that were there were these people, and he mentions people that in our day, we would say, well, those were the celebrity Christians. Those are the people who came to Christ from a place of fame. So they came, so they're like the celebrity Christians. So we have a few of those there. Um, so they're naming some of these. And then in verse two, it says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So then they go off on this journey, and they do all of these things, and it starts with the church in Antioch coming together, and they're ministering to the Lord. So what does it mean to minister to the Lord? Well, this is something, it doesn't say exactly how did they minister to the Lord. When we think about how would you minister to the Lord, we think of, well, maybe they prayed, maybe they... Um, had a praise and worship session. Maybe they read the word of God. What did they do? We don't exactly know what they did, but they ministered to the Lord. And out of that came this response where they sent out two people who went on a huge mission. And then in Acts chapter 14, in verse 23, uh, it says, so when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting and commanded them to the Lord in whom they had believed, and after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. So they're on their way back. Verse 27, now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So this picture in Acts is the church gets together in Antioch, they're praying, and it says the Holy Spirit sets apart two people. And so the, in order for the Holy Spirit to set apart two people, that means it took more than just those two people to say, I think God wants us to go. There is a setting apart that's happening. So as everyone's praying, there's like suddenly a kind of a realization where some folks are going, I think, I think, uh, I think they're supposed to go. And so... Finally, it's strong enough. So I'm just giving you my, my take on this, how it could have come out. But when it says, the Holy Spirit says, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. It's like, as they're praying, there are multiple people in the group that are going, I just feel like Barnabas and Saul are supposed to go do something. And so somebody finally has a strong enough sense of it and says, Barnabas, Saul, I believe the Lord is calling you to go. And everyone says, yes, yes. And Barnabas and Saul say, yes. We believe this is what God wants. And so because of the fellowship they're having, and it's a beautiful thing that's happening, but the fruit is that instead of staying there and building the church bigger, they get sent out. And so they get sent out and they go do something with the Lord, for the Lord, so to speak. And then they come back in and they give the report of everything that God has done. And so if you think about that and you see how that church was operating, now at this point, and what's important to note here, because there are still people today who will try to make it look like everything that happened in the early church was sent out of Jerusalem. And we see in a few chapters here, chapter 15, where they come back to Jerusalem. They have a council there where they talk about what's going on. But what we're seeing is we have a nation of kings and priests where people in Antioch are seeking the Lord, saying, Lord, what do you want us to do? And then they're going and doing that. 
without first sending back to Jerusalem and asking. And this is important because it, it took a number of years, a couple hundred years precisely, and then more after that, about 800 years after Christ, it became very, very established that you shouldn't do anything without going back to whoever the authority is way back somewhere. And so today there are still many churches that are built with this authority structure where they assume that God is going to work through an authority head somewhere up here. And yet God is saying, if you, wherever you are in Antioch or Jerusalem or in Arvada or Denver or wherever you are, you can gather together and pray and you can hear from the Lord and I will move in your midst. And this is important because I think when we talk about the nation of priests and kings, this is talking about church structure in a huge sense. God is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. He is doing something. So I have a few images here. Uh, Holly, do you have that first one? And so this was one that I had um, a number of years back. We were talking through church structure and how we work as a church. And so this was the image that I had come up with to try to explain the vision for our church structure is that we had a direction that we were walking in and we were all going together uh, and that was our purpose and our mission. And this particular uh, set of images that I had made back then was specifically talking about how do we choose leadership and how do we determine God's calling in our lives. And so it has specific pieces to it that I'm not addressing as much today but I kept looking at this going, but this doesn't quite, ex it's not quite the vision for how we operate as a church on a Sunday morning. And so this past couple of weeks, as I've been meditating on that, I added two more <clears throat> pictures that I think really illustrates well for us, for Living Water Fellowship on how we operate as a church. So let's go to the next picture. So this has to do a lot with us coming together. So the arrow from the top is the presence and purpose and direction of God. And it's coming down to us as a group of people. And so you see all these people coming together. We have all the arrows coming in. So this would be in all of our gatherings, whether it's Sunday morning or it's a prayer night or it's a get together, a book study, Bible study, whatever it is. We come together to do something. Once we've done that thing, then we go to the next picture and we get sent back out. And so now we're headed back out into the world. And in the first picture, we had the image of the, of, the, uh, of the one arrow pointing sort of one direction. We're not all walking in exactly the same thing. Are we doing similar things? Yes, we are. We all have, we, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. We believe that we have that we can hear from God, but we have different roles. We're all sharing in obedience to the same God. We're all making disciples. That's our common mission, but we have different roles. And so when we come together and when we send each other out, we're going to do different things. And so specifically, this idea for Living Water Fellowship and for us, for the church, has to do with what happens when we come together. Because this is where, when we come together, we can make it be a spectator sport where we have a few people that are doing a lot of presentation for everyone. And to some extent, we do have those gatherings where we come together and we hear, you know, we, we, um, I've been in small house churches where they said, everybody bring a guitar. And so you'd start singing a song and then you'd have these five people over here start leading out that be playing a guitar and then those people over here would strike up and pretty soon all you heard was and you had no idea where you were supposed to be singing because they weren't all equally skilled in playing the guitar. And so it was interesting. I remember being there and being like, wow, that was fascinating. I never saw that before. Okay. <clears throat> and so there is, there is a certain necessity that when you're doing something, you do need a certain amount of leadership um, and so in certain areas, when we come together, we take turns whose role it is to lead at the, in that time and in that space. But we come together for a purpose. So what happens when we're coming together? Well, it's actually a lot of things happens when we come together. When we come together, when the church comes together, when we're ministering to the Lord, yes, we come together to pray for each other. We come together for fellowship. We come together to hear the, the doctrine of the apostles. 
But there is really, if you think of it spiritually speaking, you know, we pray for each other, we build each other up, we equip each other for ministry. And I thought about, well, in a, in a practical sense, and so I, I actually started going and looking for pictures and I didn't like the images that I was coming up with, so I just left it to our imagination. So in a, when we are together, when we're coming in, there are several things happening. We have reports of what God has done while we were out there. There might be the person limping in saying, I was out there and it was bad and I got shot at and now I have you know, cannonball wounds and I need ointment for this. Um, that goes back to a Brian Regan joke, so sorry. <laughs> um, and so, so we might have like wounds that we come in. We might just come in with sore muscles and say, oh, can I, can I take this bit of armor off for a moment? And can we put some liniment right here on my shoulders? I need that. That's what I really need. And so that's part of what we're doing when we come together. We're actually coming to a safe place so that if one of us has been wounded in battle, we can actually, that can be addressed and that can be helped. Now we might say, oh, wow, this is more than a dose of fellowship will take care of. You need more help than that. And we arrange for someone to walk through a time of healing so that they can be functional in the kingdom of heaven again. We might find someone coming in and we're like, what were you doing? And we, because we, this, this will happen in any battle. You'll have someone that goes off on a rogue mission and then they get all beat up and they come back and they're like expecting their nation or their armies to surround them and help them. And their armies are like, that does not fit our mission. What you were doing was inappropriate. And so that can sometimes happen where you come in expecting to be applauded and instead someone says, that was wrong what you just did. That, that was not appropriate. And so we have that share of like equipping and teaching each other and it has some rebuke in it. But we have a certain level, what we come together for is we are sharing with each other what our mission and calling is from God, what we're supposed to be doing. And then we go out and we do it in different communities, in different places, in different areas of the town. Or, and so then the second thing that we notice with this, when we come together, the, the Antioch church was coming together weekly, several times a week, not just waiting for Paul and Barnabas to come back. So Paul and Barnabas went on a big loop and then they came back. But while they were gone, everyone else was coming and going. So I think, you know, like Caleb and Sarah are here this morning. Like you, it's been a while since you were here, Caleb. But like you're in Oklahoma. So when you come back, we welcome you in. We hear from you how things are going. Um, and I think of like Tim, when you, you know, you moved to Virginia and you were gone for a year or whatever and more, and then suddenly you're back. And so we're going, that, that's, we, we prayed for you. We send you guys out. We're expecting you to go with God. We're expecting you to do whatever God is calling you to do. And when you come back in, we both hear the report of what God is doing. And if possible, we're helping shine your armor. Um, sometimes we're treating sore muscles. Uh, we're sharing actionable intel. We're saying, here's something I learned, you know, and we're trying to share things in a way that is useful and helpful. Sometimes we, you know, we teach each other, you know, sword maneuvers, that kind of battle language where we're learning how to really do things together. But this is important thing is that um, it is necessary and good that when we come together, we have a bit of an understanding of what we're doing and that we're expecting to then go to the next slide of being sent out. If we think that we're only coming together to be together and then suddenly God calls one of us and sends us out to um, Africa or someplace, we'll be disappointed and we'll think, oh man, we failed. If we think the church is only about gathering us in, gathering in, gathering in, that's not what the church is about. The church has to do, we have something that we do while we're here together and then we all get sent out week by week. You know, and so I sometimes think I get to check in with more of you than, because uh, I get to see some of you on Wednesday, some of you here, some of, you know, different days of the week, I get to meet different believers. And so I, I find that so precious. And I realize, well, you're doing it too, just maybe with a different set of believers but this is what we're doing. We're coming together. So even if just one or two of us comes together, we're still sort of coming together, checking in with each other. And sometimes there's a lot more liniment involved and a lot more sore muscles. And other times it's just high five. You did awesome out there. And other times it's like, here, here's your next weapon. You're going to need, you know, it's amazing what we do as believers when we're encouraging, when we're walking with each other. 
But the, the sweet thing about this is it's not all about what we're doing. It's that the Lord wants to be in our midst and he wants to go with us out into the field. So when we come together, he is with us. When we send each other out, he is with us. That's the beauty of this being a nation of kings and priests is that God is not saying, okay, we've got to divvy it out carefully so that none of you are without your priest. No, we're all able to call out to the Lord. We're all, we, each of us have roles. We have something to play. And so each gift that you've been given has a function in fellowship and it has a function in the field. And so sometimes your function in the field is huge and then you come back here and it's small as we're together. And you're like, man. And so you get addicted to just being in the field all the time and you start thinking, you know, I just operate way better in the field than I do in the fellowship. So maybe I don't need that anymore. Well, that's a mistake because you actually need the things you get here so that you can function in the field. Or it might be vice versa where you say, you know, when we're together as a fellowship, man, my gifts operate big. But when I'm out there, it just nothing works. So maybe I don't need to go out there anymore. I'll just do things in the fellowship. And again, that's not quite how it works because when we come together and we're remembering what Christ has done for us and we're sharing with each other what Christ has done, we actually need to be able to say, this is what God is doing in my life right now. And it's okay to come back and say, I have no idea how it's supposed to work. I just know I'm supposed to do something over there and I've been trying and it's hard and it's not working right. And so someone else says, oh, I went through that once. Well, what did you do? And so they share what they did, what their process was, and you're in that, you might learn something. And so that's important. We need the fellowship time, but we need the time in the field. But your gifts, will function while functioning in both places, will look slightly different when we're together versus when you're out there. And so don't be shocked or surprised when you walk with such authority and results in one area, and then you go to the next area and it just doesn't seem to work right. You need to figure that out. That's part of why we gather together to talk about how does it work? What am I supposed to do in the field? So I want to encourage you with that. And then we have this, the, the last verse for today comes out of Revelation. And so this is, we started in Exodus, we jumped to 1 Peter, and then we went through Acts a little bit. And then here in Revelation, Jesus speaking, Revelation 1, verse 4, John is writing. He says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we have this at the end, as Revelation is being, at the end of scripture here, as Revelation is being sent out there to the seven churches, and, you, and, and just in a general sense, uh, not in a prophetic specific sense, but in a general sense, we fall somewhere, we're in the seven churches, right? We're somewhere in the churches. And so Jesus himself is speaking to us and he says, I've made you a nation of kings and priests. And I've sent you to do something. So how are we gonna do that? And that's my challenge for us is we're, we're called to be a special treasure. And when we think about our fellowship, it is easy for us to start thinking in terms of what do you do? What do I do? but we need to switch it a little bit and say, how, who are we together? And we're not fully who we are apart from Christ in us, the hope of glory. So when we come together the first time, and, you know, and I don't know if you've ever had, you know, there's, someone, there's always someone in your life that likes to tell you, um, you know, maybe they broke a leg in a dramatic way and, and they want to tell you all the details. And I'm just going, don't, don't talk about it too much. It hurts my leg when you speak of yours. And, and, or you're like, they're like, oh, my spleen. I'm like, oh, my spleen, you know? And so I have this whole, um, it's, there's a name for it, this empathetic, sympathetic pain type thing where when you're describing what you went through, I'm like, oh. And so I really hate it when women get together and start talking about giving birth because I'm hurting in body parts I literally don't have. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so there's a certain level when someone comes in and starts talking about what they're suffering, where I'm like, can you please not talk about that? 
But there's the other side of it where I say, well, in Christ, I do want to hear what you're going through. And so there's times when someone comes in and they start talking and I'm thinking, oh, not again. But it's important that I listen and that I hear. And maybe I am not the one to put liniment on that wound. Maybe someone else is supposed to be doing that. But I still want to have that heart that says, what is God doing in your life? And so when we gather, that's one of the reasons why we eat together every year, every Sunday is because we're also talking during that time. And so today we're actually, we're coming to a time of communion. And so within this concept, I just wanted to, to, to bring us to that and say, what do we do? Well, when we, when we take the communion, and we can go ahead and pass the communion um, elements out right now. And so I, I think about this in two ways. You know, here at Living Water Fellowship, one of the things we've done with communion is we say, if you're a baptized believer, then you are welcome to participate. And then we have done the other thing where we will allow, at times, you know, I'm an ordained minister, I will administer communion, but we've allowed other people to administer it. And this has caused a, a discussion at various times um, when people have been here as guests. They say, well, what, you don't have, why are you letting a lay person share communion? And I say, have you not heard of the priesthood of all believers? Because I believe that if you want to have communion in your house, you can. And so in some of the church traditions, it is necessary to, to bless this by a properly ordained person in the proper role and position in the hierarchy of the church. And in my mind, that is, is we're breaking something that God had made, is that he made something beautiful and simple and yes, we should come with respect because we're remembering Jesus and the agony that he went through. And we're remembering his broken body and the blood that was spilled out. That's what we're remembering. But we're doing it as a fellowship and we're crying out to God through the Son that he would have mercy on us as his people because we need help. And we've come together as a congregation to say, we remember what you did, Lord, and we, we want to be obedient to you. We want to follow you in obedience, and I think we can do that whether we're all ordained or none of us are ordained. And so I don't want to make light of the people who are saying that it has to be, but I just want to point that out to us as a fellowship is that we really do believe in the priesthood of all believers. We do believe there's different roles, but honestly, I think sometimes when we gather up here and we're sitting around the tables at noon and we're eating food and talking, that at that, that point, we are just as much remembering the blood and body of Christ as we do when we get these elements out. And honestly, I have these, I have these little flash moments sometimes where I'm like, did Jesus really mean we're supposed to do this little cup thing and all this? Or did he mean when you get together and you're eating together? And I just have that simple question because when we as believers get together and we're eating together, that is sacred. That is holy. That is ministry. That's what we're doing together as a body. And when we get together, remember why we came together. It's because of Jesus. It's because of what he has purchased. And we're trying to say to each other, don't forget what Christ has purchased for you. Because you know, and, and, and we need this from season to season. I know I need it when I'm looking at the task that I believe God has assigned for me. I look at it and I say, wow, this seems to be too big for me. And then I'm reminded, well, many of the tasks that God has given to me have been way too big for me because he wanted to walk with me in them. That was the whole idea from the beginning. He's like, I want you to walk this path. I'm like, well, I can't do that. He's like, I know, ridiculous. Of course you can't do that, but I'm gonna indwell you and walk with you and then you can do that. And so whenever I'm coming here and we're doing communion, that's part of what I'm remembering is that life is too big to be done by myself. I need Jesus. And not only do I need Jesus, I need Jesus with you, in fellowship with you. And so we come together to remember that we belong to Christ and we are part of the way. We're part of those. We come together to encourage each other and then we go out to do the mission that God has given us to do. And that's glorious. So let's pray and then we'll partake together. Father, we come to you today and we're remembering the love of Jesus and what Christ has done for us. So I ask, Father, that you would bless us today, encourage our hearts, 
Lord, as we partake of this to remind us of the broken body of Christ and the blood of Christ that was spilled for us, I pray that you would visit us with your spiritual presence and give us wisdom and fellowship in a physical way here together. And then as we go from here to go do the work you've called us to do, we ask for that, as, that you'd go with us, Lord. We want to walk with you. So Father, today I don't know what's of brokenness, what of sore muscles or broken armor that is here in our midst, but I pray that as we're together, we would be able to help encourage one another and that through that we'd be able to minister to you and that you would continually set us apart for your purposes and that you would send us out for your purposes. Thank you for your love for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake together. And the cup that represents the blood of Christ. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. That's us. We are the people that God has called. And as he started there in Exodus, if you will obey me. So there's something Christ is asking us to obey, and it starts with the word of God. And then it goes to specifics in your community, in your family, in your work and ministry. There's things that God wants you to do. Let's do those, but let's not do those apart from the fellowship of the saints and the fellowship with Christ. May the Lord bless us.